Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey folks, Dr. Tim Jordan here with another episode of Raising Daughters. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it coming by here every week to listen in and to get some information about girls and raising girls. And, and most of you tell me that you want to, at this moment in your lives, be an influence in your daughter's life. You want to remain an influence through the teen years and beyond. So this is the right place to be. And it's especially the right place to be today because we have an author who I'm going to interview. And she has an awesome book out about stress. Uh, her name is Dr. Kelly McGonigal. And she's a PhD psychologist who lives in California, and she's an educator, and she teaches some classes at Stanford University. She teaches dance classes and movement classes, and she's got an identical twin sister, and she has a, a great TED Talk, and she's written three books. I think you're, I'm not sure if this is true. The, one of your first books was The Willpower Instinct, which got a lot of notoriety, sold a lot of, a lot of books. Is that true or not yeah, true? Yeah, my first, well, my first book was actually Yoga for Pain Relief. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So The Willpower <laughs> Instinct was one. Um, <laughs> And she has a new book out called The Joy of Movement, which she'll talk about at the end of the podcast today. But today I had her come on because I want to talk about her other book called The Upside of Stress. As a lot of you know who have listened to these podcasts for the last four or five years, is I work with girls in my counseling practice, weekend retreat, summer camps. I just did a weekend retreat. I was telling uh, Dr. McGonigal a minute ago, I had 23 middle school girls and they were all stressed out. And mm. yesterday uh, at, I had uh, an hour and a half with my high school uh, group and uh, there's about three seniors and, and uh, four uh, ones who are a little bit younger, but they're all stressed out about finals and the seniors are stressed out about college and the application process. And so girls, in my experience in working with girls for over 30 years, retreats, camps, office and everything is that that's one of the things I see that's different now than it was maybe 15, 20 or so years ago, is that they do talk a lot about, I think they are more stressed out and more anxious than they used to be. So that's why I thought it'd be uh, a good thing to have uh, Kelly McGonigal on to talk about her book, The Upside of Stress. So thanks so much for coming on to Raising Daughters. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love what you do. I know it's interesting, your observation. So one of the things that I noticed at Stanford is there was a shift and it actually, you know, I noticed it uh, more than 10 years ago. Uh, a shift towards what I thought of as being kind of like a um, more vulnerability. It had to do with anxiety and also um, a sense of uh, that that's kind of like fighting spirit that I used to see all the time in Stanford undergraduates, whether it was, you know, fighting to change an A minus to an A or competing <laughs> with one another. There was this, this kind of the whole character started to change a little bit in, in some ways that were really beautiful and sweet. I can increase empathy and increase vulnerability that can be positive and also a little bit less resilience and a little bit more self-doubt. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that's part of uh, the cultural shift that you're noticing. It's not just that, that uh, kids and young women are more stressed and more anxious, but I would say that there's a, a kind of uncertainty, um, a sense of, uh, worrying about their ability to create a life, a life for themselves, to accomplish the things that they've been told are important and that are important to them. Um, I, I feel like that's an interesting psychological shift that I've observed. Yeah. Before we get into that, and I want to get into all of that, I would love to ask you how you got to where you are, because a lot of the girls who I work with now as young as grade school, it's, it's so disturbing to me. Uh, I had a, a, a group of 25 grade school girls last summer for a week of summer camp. And also uh, this past fall, we had some 20 girls uh, who were grade school girls and we were, they were talking about stress and pressure. And so we were, and we were asking, you know, what, what are you so stressed about? And the number one answer was not middle school. It was not high school. It was college and their future. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I've been hearing that with high school girls the last 10 years, like you probably, well, maybe you don't work with high school girls, but I have, I've been hearing it way down to, to middle school girls. And now it's also filtering down even to grade school girls. So, so one of the things that they're most stressed about is they feel like they should know their whole life story. What college am I going to? What's my, what's my major? What's my calling? What's my job going to be? And so I like to ask people like you, when you were 17 or 18, did you know you'd be doing this? Yeah, interesting. Um, I would really love to speak directly to that those young women, even though they may not be the ones listening. So let me they just listen. talk. They do listen. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. So um, I didn't know. You know, if you'd asked me at that age what I thought, seventeen or eighteen, what I thought I would be doing with my life, um, I had a lot of interesting goals. I wanted to be a professional shopper. I thought maybe I would be a talk show host, uh, maybe a fashion designer, maybe a professional artist. Um, and I was being told by all the adults in my life, my teachers, my parents, my friends' parents, that somebody who was smart should not be interested in things I was interested in. Yeah. I was dancing, I was performing, I loved fashion, and I loved shopping, and I loved art, and I, I had all these ideas of a creative life. And I just was told over and over, um, that's a waste, and it's not realistic. And you know what you ought to do is be thinking about the things that you know the very limited, constrained professions: doctor, lawyer, business person, whatever that means. CEO, um, of course, you got to break yeah. the ceiling and be a, be a CEO. And so I, I have to say that um, one of the things that I really value about myself is actually I have very strong intuitions and instincts about what lights me up and what I care about. I have always loved dance and music. And, uh, and exercise since I was a little girl, you know, doing aerobics, I dreamed of being an aerobics instructor and everyone always said, well, that's a ridiculous goal to have. Um, I've always loved creativity. And then what I didn't realize until later in my life, I also love teaching and I love, um, helping people, basically through teaching, explaining Mm -hmm. research, explaining ideas, sharing stories. And so I got where I am now by basically listening to what I love and not listening to advice that my gut told me was wrong. You know, for example, when I was in graduate school, getting my PhD in psychology, my advisor, he was an amazing advisor. I'm so grateful he was my mentor, but what he told me my first year was not to waste my time teaching that I should only focus on conducting and publishing scientific research that teaching would really derail me and set me back. And I knew instantly that that was bad advice. And I actually started teaching on the side. <laughs> I'm not even telling him. That's when I started teaching yoga and dance classes. And you're a uh, rebel and then, too. And then I also started teaching psychology classes when I was a graduate student. I was just like, I'm all in on this because I got direct feedback uh, that this was something I was good at and something that mattered to me. And so I got used to disappointing people who thought, uh, who had very strong ideas about what I should do, whether it was my parents or my mentor. Um, and that's, so that's the advice that I would give is that you don't have to figure it all out, but um, to trust the things you love, to trust the things that when you do them, you bring joy to other people, or you see that what you do is of value, that it contributes the things that challenge you in a way. One of the best pieces of advice that I ever got years and years ago was that there's a particular type of fear that is the go signal. And we can easily mistake it as the stop signal. It's this kind of fear that has a lot of energy around it. I've learned, I feel it around my heart. And it's almost like there's a hook attached to my chest and someone is reeling me forward and I get very scared. And there's a kind of intuition And uh, I got really good advice from a teacher that said, uh, that's the signal that your life is about to change if you're willing to do this thing that scares you. And so I feel that at different points in my life. And I now learn to choose courage over uh, panic (laughs) when that's happening. But that's the sort of thing I would encourage um, people to start to pay attention to. And the path, you can't possibly know what your path is until you're walking on it. You know, the path, part of the way that the path becomes visible is you're on it and to keep taking steps in the direction of things that interest you and challenge you and that seem to make a difference to others and action and participation in life is actually how the path, uh, it, it literally, it's, you know, constructed in front of you in part through your own willing participation in life. You don't have to know it. There's no map. 
you know, and I think what that requires, what it required of you and requires of girls today, which I'm, I worry they, they aren't learning is they've got to learn how to be quiet, check in with themselves and access that intuition. And I don't think we're doing a good job of teaching girls that. Yeah. And it's hard, like, it's hard to even know how do you teach that? Um, I actually had a teacher who would try, this was uh, within the yoga community uh, and he would actually challenge us to ask ourselves questions like, should I eat this apple or this apple? If you're at the grocery store and you're choosing apples and just get quiet and pause and see what your instinct tells you to do. Like that was, that was the only training I think I've ever received. So I don't really know what the best way is to start to pay attention to that, but I like your idea of taking time to be quiet. And I actually think that writing is also a really useful medium for exploring your intuitions and your values. You know, you can ask yourself questions and then write in response to it. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about stress because mm. that's um, what your book, The Upside of Stress is about. By the way, we're talking to Dr. Kelly McGonigal, who's at Stanford University. So you talk a lot of, in your book about how it's not so much stress that's a problem. It's how we, how we look at stress and how we frame stress. So talk about that for a minute, if you would. Yeah. And so this is, I, I want to put up front that this is a perspective that you can choose to take on stress that I actually came to value by seeing its positive effect on uh, young undergraduate students at Stanford, um, particularly freshmen showing up uh, who believed that stress was always bad and also were extremely stressed. So there's, there's an interesting kind of audience for this message and it's people uh, for whom life is stressful and if they continue to choose a life of meaning, it will continue to be stressful or they are in circumstances they can't control that are stressful. This is, this is by the way, everyone right now for most people during the pandemic. Um, but most people were given this message about stress that it is possible to avoid stress or reduce stress if you just do life right. And you should be able to have a meaningful life full of growth and accomplishment and family and love and fun. And if you just do it right, you'll get all those things without stress. That's not true. Research from around the world shows that stress is often an index of meaning and opportunity. So to the degree that you have goals that are important to you, that you have relationships that are important to you, that you have roles that you play in your community that are important to you, you're more likely to experience stress every day. Um, to the degree that you have opportunities to learn and grow, you're going to experience stress uh, more frequently. And so there's this sort of mythology that if you're stressed, it means you're doing life wrong. And this is particularly challenging for young people because um, they're involved in so many growth experiences. There is so much uncertainty. There actually is a lot of things that are out of their control because they're young and they're still, you know, uh, following rules and, and um, living in contexts where they don't get to choose every aspect of their life. And if you believe that stress is a sign that you're not cut out for this, if you believe that stress is a sign that you're, there's something screwed up with your relationships, with your life, um, it's very easy to fall into anxiety and depression and very easy to turn to coping strategies where the primary aim is to feel less stressed or avoid the things that cause stress. And this is when you see people start to develop really unhealthy coping strategies like drinking, other substances, um, self-harm, eating disorders, withdrawal, social isolation. Um, so the point of view is a long way of getting to the point of view. So the point of view that I started um, sharing with people was this interesting research that how you think about stress can be as important for your health and your happiness and your success as whether or not you can control stress. So let's Assuming that you can't sort of set up the perfect amount of stress in your life for you today, you can shift your attention to how you think about stress, which then changes everything from how your immune system responds to stress, to how confident you feel when you walk into a stressful situation, to even how other people view you and your ability to connect with other people and strengthen relationships during difficult times, and even your ability to, to learn and grow from stress you wouldn't have chosen for yourself, like let's say the pandemic. You know, there's research that just came out showing that people who uh, have a more positive view of stress, that stress is something that can be a catalyst for learning, for growth, for connection, for developing your strengths. 
that they were more likely to experience um, positive growth as part of the pandemic experience. So that's the point of view that I'm trying to share with people. It's not that stress is always fun. It's not that there are no harmful effects of stress. It's certainly not the case that I want people to try to stress out. <laughs> like, you know, let's create situations where kids get to practice suffering because it's good for them. No, no, More no. More activities. You don't, you don't need to practice yeah. it. It's already happening. Um, but this point of view that is empowering, and I saw when I first started teaching it in the introduction to psychology class, which is mostly freshmen at Stanford, the, the benefits of believing that you could embrace stress rather than avoid stress. That is a, that was a real turning point for me seeing how much it benefited them. And then that led to exploring it further and the book. And uh, we can talk more about what that looks like. Yeah. You know, I, I talk to girls about anxiety in a similar way because they get freaked out if they start getting anxious. And so we talk about what's going on in the brain when they get anxious and how it's just an alarm system and you can freak out and, I always tell him, like if like my dog, Buddy, just walked by, if Buddy starts to bark, which he never does, but if, if a, a normal dog starts to bark at the front door, I always ask girls, do you call the police? Do you dial 911? Well, no. I said, well, why not? Well, I don't know. I usually just look outside to see what's going on. Oh, it's a FedEx truck or it's, it's a neighbor walking by with their dog. Right. So you don't freak out. You just go, oh, it's just a warning. It's there for a good reason. It's been there for 150,000 years. I would guess the same thing holds true for stress. Yeah. So actually one of the best reframes for anxiety and particularly for, um, for girls who are more prone to experience anxiety for a number of reasons, you know, anxiety is linked to some really wonderful personality traits like conscientiousness and pro-sociality. Like the more you care about other people, often the more anxiety you have. So, and I also, I'm someone who grew up with a temperament of anxiety. I, I came out you know, zero months anxious. It, it is like one of my defining personality traits and temperaments. So I definitely have had to learn how to live with it um, and use it. I actually value it, even though it's not always fun. It's often not fun. But so here's the best reframe. Uh, for many people, anxiety is a sign that you care, period, full stop. That's it. It's not a sign that something is going wrong. It's not a something that you are inadequate to the challenge. It's not a sign that other people are judging you. All the things that we often misinterpret anxiety as. And when you can stop thinking of anxiety, actually, even as an alarm, right? it's not necessarily threat detection. Anxiety is often uh, a sign of caring. It, it's a sign that this is a moment that matters, or it's a challenge that matters to you. And so because many people experience anxiety as related to their heart, whether their heart rate increases or there's that feeling of like charge. Um, I will often say to myself, my heart is in it. And the feelings of anxiety are very similar physiologically to feelings of excitement, to feelings of flow when you're really using your strengths in an activity that you care about. Um, that actually the physiology of anxiety looks a lot like the physiology of um, courage. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really just a mindset reset. You know, you're still super energized. You're still super alert. You're just moving in the direction of your goals rather than shutting down. Um, and, you know, for every symptom of stress or aspect of stress, there often is a reframe like that, that is both scientifically accurate and psychologically helpful. And that's the kind of thing I try to share. So for the parents who are listening and also for the girls who are listening in, what are some specific things they can do to shift their mindset? Yeah. So first of all, it is to, is to do that kind of reframe. So to figure out if you're somebody who experiences anxiety or you're somebody who experiences um, any sort of particular stress symptom that you then use as information ask yourself, what is my interpretation right now? So when I get stressed, do I tell myself it's because I'm going to fail? And does that lead you to make certain coping strategies? Do when you're feeling anxious, do you make the interpretation that it's because, you know, my friends are judging me or don't really like know the real me. There's, often there's this movement from, I'm feeling something in my body it's a little bit uncomfortable. There's like a charge around it. There's energy around it. And then I make a leap to some sort of belief or interpretation that often will lead you to behave in ways that are inconsistent with your values or goals. So, you know, the real reframe is, okay, 
I experience anxiety before school, before an exam, before I get together with friends, whatever it is, um, to check in and say, okay, if this is just a signal that I care, it's a signal, this is a moment that matters. Um, what's something that you can say to yourself that facilitates behavior that really honors your goals, your relationships, the things that matter to you. So, you know, do you say to yourself something like, um, stress is energy that I can harness. So I'm going to, I'm going to face this challenge. I'm going to take action. Do you say something like my heart is in this? That's why I'm feeling this. So who, and what do I really care about? And just even thinking about that as you move forward. Um, sometimes, uh, people will use the mantra. This is what we trained for. You know, a lot of people experience anxiety are actually highly competent, highly prepared. Um, we know looking at super successful, you know, whether we're talking about surgeons or performers like Beyonce has talked about how she experiences extreme anxiety before every performance. Uh, and she says, that's like, the reason I feel it is because it matters. And if I didn't feel that anxiety, maybe I wouldn't be able to bring my full self and give my, my best performance. So uh, I sometimes like the mantra, you know, this is what we trained for. Cause you can imagine yourself like an athlete or like a performer or like a surgeon, right. Who's like, this is what we trained for. The anxiety is telling me it's time to use all the resources that I have. Um, so that's one way to start. And, and you said, you say in the book too, that it's important that they become aware of what resources do I have? Yeah. In both inner resources and outer resources. And, you know, I think that one of the things when I think about young people, one of the things that I think older people sometimes forget is when you ask adults, like, how are you dealing with the most stressful circumstances in your life? They will almost always tell you they're drawing on strengths and beliefs that were uh, developed through past adversity and stress. So, you know, by the time you're an adult, you probably had a lot of experiences that taught you you're somebody who can get through difficult situations. You have creativity, you have a sense of humor, you know how to draw on the people who care about you, you're willing to accept help, you're brave, right? Um, the younger you are, the less experience you have with all like this full stress response repertoire. Maybe you don't yet know how to ask for help. Uh, maybe you haven't yet experienced a major failure that has caused you to have to let go of one goal and find a new goal. And so part of, part of what it means to like get good at stress is to, is to develop these coping strategies in this repertoire through stressful experiences. So young people are having to figure this out. And, uh, I, I say that in part because it's so important for, uh, for everyone to have empathy for people who don't have that full confidence yet, who don't know, who aren't confident it's going to work. If I tell people that I'm struggling, will they help me or will they shun me and shame me? You, if you haven't done it yet, you don't actually know. So part of what so the task of getting good at stress is, is trying different stress strengths that we know human beings have. They're part of our capacity to thrive in difficult circumstances and to really get on the table what some of these repertoires are. So one of them is asking for help. Uh, another one is looking for ways to be of service to others when you yourself are struggling. That is a, a hugely helpful coping strategy for so many people to look for ways to give back or help um, as a source of resilience, even when things are, are difficult in your own life. Um, adaptability, making meaning, asking yourself, what can I learn from the situation? Taking that kind of growth mindset, you know, often the growth mindset that's taught to young people in schools is um, if you work really hard, you can get better at stuff. And that's an important mindset to have, but it's also equally important to have the growth mindset that is about learning from <laughs> things that have already happened so that you can move forward. How do I want to you know, approach my next relationship differently? Um, how do I want to prepare differently for the next project or exam or that, that you take from that experience and say, all right, how do I want to choose to change, to trust that we are very adaptive as human beings and life changes us, but you get to play an active role in how experiences change you. And I think that this is a mindset that, um, 
is actually contrary to, to a lot of messages that young people get today, which is a, uh, messages that are rooted in empathy and compassion in looking outward at other people's suffering or pain. You know, a lot of young people today really want to minimize the harm they do to others and maximize the respect that they show to others. And part of that is understanding that, that life experiences can be harmful and traumatizing and challenging. And the more you, the, sort of the, the bigger you are able to have that awareness, it can also have a flip side in which you become more aware of how difficult circumstances are painful for you. And there's this interesting balancing act. I'm not sure that I figured out how to talk about it yet, but I think it's going to be really important moving forward. Now that there is this kind of increased compassion and sensitivity, how to also start developing a sense that you have the capacity to, you, you're adequate to your own life experiences. So even though you're going to have life experiences that are painful, that are harmful, that are traumatizing, you're not irrevocably broken or weakened by them. Yeah. And it's an interesting paradox. A lot of the faith traditions and, and wisdom traditions and philosophies you know, throughout history have tried to strike this balance of, can we be motivated to reduce harm and suffering in the world and to even like reduce pain and stress in our own lives? And at the same time, have the wisdom to understand we can't avoid it all. So what perspective are we going to take that allows us to make meaning from it and to trust our own strength and our own capacity to, um, to survive and thrive? We're talking with Dr. Kelly McGonigal. She is a, a teacher at Stanford University and the author of a really good book called The Upside of Stress. Um, I think what you're, I love what you're saying. And I think it requires at least a couple of things from parents. One of them is you have to let your kids sometimes struggle mm -hmm. without jumping in right away, because if they're going to develop those coping strategies, and even like I've read studies that say one of the most predictive factors in kids being successful when they go to college, isn't their GPA or their, or their ACT score, it's their level of hope and optimism. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think to me, that what that means to me is that they've been able to have challenges, struggle, and then kind of work it through and push through and then go, wow, I did it. So that if you have a bunch of those experiences before you enter at Stanford's campus, it's kind of like, that's why I'm optimistic because I've done it. I don't need to hope I can do it. I, I have done it. But I also, I also think if I can, let me say one more thing that you can respond. Mm. It also means that for the, for the kids, they have to have the um, wherewithal when they go through a struggle, whether it's a broken relationship, whether it's a, an adversity, to sit back and spend some quiet time saying, what did I learn from that? What does it mean about me? What's my story? And what can I take from this? What strengths did I get from this? I think, I think parents need to let them experience, but I also think once they have the experiences, they need to be able to learn from them. Yes, and it's so important to have resources that help you cultivate that mindset. When I was growing up, for me, I would say that books were often the greatest source of that and illustration of it. You know, I was very drawn to um, memoirs of people who had lived through difficult life circumstances as a teenager and then as a college student and, and continuing on, because I found in them really models for how to, to make sense of stress or failures. You know, one of the the um, books that was most meaningful to me in that regard was uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor mm. Frankl, which is sort of an extreme example. Um, but you can also learn a lot from, you know, listening to podcasts and, uh, and music that has this perspective. So, I, you know, I would really encourage parents or teenagers or anyone who cares about cultivating this mindset to think about the, um, the arts and, um, and entertainment and all the things you turn to that are outside sources of stories that we know that people are more likely to have a growth mindset, to experience stress-related growth when they've heard stories of other people doing the same thing. So think about who inspires you. Is it athletes? Is it you know performing artists? Um, is it people who are out there making a difference in the world? Is it people who struggled from similar things that you have? And to expose yourself to their ideas and their stories as a way of, of cultivating that mindset. And it's, it's so true what you said about needing to let children struggle and fail. But I think a really big important part of that is um, for kids to know that you care about them unconditionally, 
regardless of their success or their struggles, and that you have an undetermined path for their happiness. You know, that there are so many different ways to have a life that is valuable and it doesn't have to look a certain way. And you have to truly believe that. I mean, kids smell BS. It's got to be something evolutionary. They can tell when you say one thing, but you mean something else. Um, and, you know, in the same way that we can tell when someone's laughter is true or not, right? Someone's smile is true or not. We know when somebody means what they say or not. And so you actually have to have a vision for uh, another human being's life that has 99 different possibilities and you don't have to know what any of them are. I used to, I'm trying to think, oh, if I can see it on my bookshelf. There was a book that I recommended for a long time. Yes, let me just see what it is. Calling, Callings. Yes. Callings? Uh, the, the book is called Callings by oh, Dave, Dave yes, Isey. Is it a yellow cover? Yeah, um, I've read that. I've read mine that. Mine doesn't. It has Maybe. a great cover. Yeah. Maybe the payment in paperback, it's yellow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I love about that is it's just people talking about their callings and how they discovered it. Yeah. And it's not callings like, I was called to be the president. Uh, I was called to be a hugely successful CEO. It's like, I was called to be the person who, and then it's just like things you never even knew people could do for a living. It's I yeah. was... I was born to be a perfume smeller. You know, I was yeah. whatever. Um, that's a great book for, for broadening your scope of what is possible for you in your life. I always encourage young people to read biographies and books like that. And also I tell them, interview every adult you bump into. Your relatives, your aunt, your uncle during the holidays, if you're at a dinner, your friend's parents, any adult you bump into and say, how'd you get there? Wherever you're doing now, you, you found something you love to do. How did you get there? Because I want them to hear that for every per, for every hundred people, there are a hundred stories. There's not like this one linear path that they're all supposed to be smashed on. Yeah. I, I think that is what kids are absorbing. I think that we're not helping them learn to trust their intuition and their urges like you like you have done your whole life. I don't think that they're trusting that enough. I feel like they feel like it's all supposed to be set in stone. Yeah. You know, if I were to give adults one piece of advice for shaking loose from that a little bit, this is going to be very, um, this is probably the, I'll be the first person to make the suggestion on your show. One of the things that I've realized is, uh, people get very stuck in, in how things should be in a way that they get very stuck with what music they think is fun to listen to. And, you know, most people stop listening to new popular music in their twenties or their thirties. And then they think that everything that is popular after that is noise or like reveals what's wrong with, with yeah. modern culture or young people. And so one is I encourage people to do is, you know, listen to Spotify, whatever is the popular, whatever genre you love, country, hip hop, pop, whatever it is. Um, listen to what's new, listen to what your kids are listening to and have an absolute commitment to understand it to move to it, to sing along to it. Um, it is one of the best trainings for deep empathy and cognitive flexibility that a person can do. Um, and I think that, that when you, when you have that mindset, it's, it's a way of, of like actually training and embodying this thing that can seem very abstract. Like, how do I, how do I hold open the possibility that I don't have to have it all figured out. And there's so many different possibilities and I can continue to grow into the future. And so can see, my kid. See how your early interest in music and the arts has I come know. right through your whole life. Yeah. It's like hey. those little threads, right? Yep. And I also, by the way, I take it as one of my missions in life is to introduce people to new music, new popular music for their lifespan. I just this morning, I uh, taught a dance class for women. Their, their age, most of them range in age 60 to early 90s. And, um, you know, we are dancing to the absolute biggest hits in pop music and K-pop and Bollywood and Bhangra. And uh, they will come and like one woman today brought me a video that of music that her grandkids are listening to and she wants to learn choreography for it. And I'm, oh. I, I'm here for that. I will be learning it. So she can dance that choreography with her she grandkids. She can do a TikTok video for, That's her right. for Christmas, right? Um, you, you talk in your book about compassion and I... I've read a lot of research about self-compassion and the importance of that for helping people kind of get through uh, adversities and tough times. And um, can you talk about that for a little bit? 
Yeah. So compassion is recognizing when somebody is in pain or suffering, um, feeling connected to that person, having a motivation to relieve that pain or suffering, to help them, uh, and a belief that there's something that you can do. So that leads to a willingness to respond, a kind of a courage or a caring or an outreach. So self-compassion is, is that for you. And it's harder for a lot of people than feeling compassion for someone else, because everything that I mentioned about how compassion unfolds is harder for self than for others, for most people. So first of all, to recognize when you're in pain or suffering and to stay with it long enough to really understand what the pain is rather than trying to immediately distract yourself from it or fix it to make it go away or tell yourself it's not really important or hide it from other people, right? So that's hard. Um, the feeling connected to the one who's suffering when it's our own pain, our own suffering, we often have instincts to blame ourselves, criticize ourselves. We feel shame. We feel angry. Uh, we maybe feel sad. Uh, in ways that are a little different than when we see a friend or family member we really care about suffering. It, it is a kind of a contraction that can make us feel colder towards ourselves rather than warmer towards ourselves. Um, and then when it comes to wanting to do something to relieve that suffering and believing that you can, again, often we feel kind of trapped. We aren't sure. And, and those emotions of shame or self-criticism, anger and sadness they, they can create that belief that there's nothing I can do, or I deserve this pain and suffering that I'm feeling. Or if I ask other people for help, they'll judge me because it really is my fault that I'm experiencing this. So to train self-compassion, you really have to develop a relationship with yourself that is similar to someone you care deeply in and believe in and want the best for. Um, and so sometimes the best way to to cultivate self-compassion is when you're starting to feel that kind of stress or pain or suffering to actually um, externalize it and imagine that it's someone you care about, a friend or family member. Imagine that they are in that situation. What would you say to them? What advice would you give to them? And we know that people will often come up with really words of wisdom yeah. and action strategies that are really helpful. But the other thing I will say is that, um, a big part of self-compassion is believing that you are deserving of compassion and being willing to let other people know what you're feeling and what you're struggling with. A big part of self-compassion is this courage to open yourself to the kindness and compassion of others and to experiment with figuring out who in your life is going to provide it. And it's, it can be painful because it's not going to be everyone. Not everyone is equally good and knowing how to respond to somebody who's struggling. Even people who love you sometimes don't know what to say or do, and they may disappear or they may not live up to sort of what you really need. And that, but that's part of what self-compassion is, is having the courage to try to figure out who can be there for you in that way and to reach out. Yeah, have you read uh, Meg Jay's book, Supernormal? Oh, I haven't, but I, I remember really I, she gave a TED talk. That was yeah. really, yeah. And she's, and she's been on our podcast here on Raising Daughters twice. But one of the things that um, I learned from her book about is that most people went through at least one or two, you know, reasonable adversities growing up. And that, you know, I tell this to girls all the time in my retreats and things. We do circle time. Where they talk and they cry and they share and they learn and all that. And what, a couple of things. One of them is that they learn I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. which is a huge piece of that self-compassion because they think they're the only one and they start beating themselves up. Um, but the other part is, and I lost my train of thought. Oh, uh, Meg J. Um, and super normal. It's, a, it's about, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, I got so wound up talking about camp. Uh, oh, sometimes the person who's going to be there for you is not your mom and dad. Sometimes yeah. it's not your parents. Sometimes they just don't have it because of their life experience, because of their own whatever, sometimes they're not the ones who can step up and su supply or, or be there and give you the kind of support you need in that particular moment with that particular adversity. But people who end up doing well, they become super normal and get through adversities. They become good at finding other people, other parents. They're good at attracting support. I'm, I'm guessing you found that too in your work. 
Yeah, I think that's, that is a really important perspective and to know that it could be different people at different times in your life. It could be strangers. It could be people who've gone through something similar, who understand it. Um, and sometimes parents fall short just because they care so much. So sometimes it's because they just don't know how to cope or they have their own suffering. And sometimes it's because they care about you so much. Your pain is their pain amplified. And that can make, then it's like, it's a whole other level of like, uh, it's like self, the challenges of self-compassion magnify because the person you care about most, who's an extension of you is suffering and you can't fix it or control it. And sometimes parents say really dumb stuff, or they don't know how to help because they're trying to manage their own fears and their own pain. It can be really challenging to be on the receiving end of that. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, when, when parents ask me for advice on how to help their kids deal with anxiety or depression or breakups or, you know, all, all sorts of health challenges. Um, one of the things I always say is you have to learn how to be with your own distress. You have to breathe through, you have to create some spaciousness because if you are so overwhelmed by your own love and your own fear and your own empathic distress, um, we know that that is contagious and it is, it doesn't give kids the breathing room that they need to develop self-compassion and to accept help and to have hope. Um, So sometimes it really, you know, the best thing you can do to help someone else is cultivate your own resilience and spaciousness for, okay, anger is here. Anger can be here. Fear is here. Fear can be here. We're talking with with Dr. Kelly McGonigal. She's a, a professor at Stanford University and the author of a book, The Upside of Stress. And just I have one more quick question um, about stress, something that you, that you wrote in your book. Oh, by the way, there's another book that I, w- I think you'd like to read if you haven't. It talks about mentors in a sense. I bet this is who you are for a lot of your students. It's called The Right Words at the Right Time. Oh, I have by, not heard of that. By Marlo Thomas, the actress. Oh, okay. She has, she has yeah. two books. One of them is the right words at the right time. I guess it's part one. And she, and she has these little two or three page stories of, from eminent people that you might know politicians or athletes or entertainers and how at certain point in their life, someone stepped up and said the right thing at the right time and ooh, changed the whole trajectory of how they thought yeah. about things. And then the second book is part two, I guess. It's just kind of like normal everyday people and their stories, but they're fun, little short, but sweet stories. Anyway, it's off track, but there's a Wait, it's not off track. Now you have to let me respond to that. Cause I love okay, that. Go. When yeah. I think about the right things that people said to me at the right time, I can think of all of the teachers and adults in my life who saw something good in me and told me to trust it from one of my very first um, directors I worked with in childhood theater, who said that when I danced, it was like the music was coming out of my body, even though I didn't have the right physical type to be like a professional dancer. My body type would never let me, you know, go off and be a ballerina, but he saw something in me that was real that I learned to trust or a writing instructor. That's a magical thing to say to a kid. Yeah, I know. But so I had a writing instructor who also said, keep writing, whatever else you do, keep writing. Mm. And so you are right that that is, I view that as my primary goal as a, as a teacher and as a mentor in any context, I think it's my job to see what is good in an individual, sometimes before they see it, reflect it back, magnify it and encourage them to trust it. Um, So I love that idea. And I also, you know, since we talked about um, not, not (laughs) there being not one path, I should correct something you said, you called me a professor at Stanford. Actually, I'm not a professor. I'm a lecturer, which is a less prestigious role to have. And I made a very conscious decision when I was a graduate student that I didn't wanna be a professor because of what that role entails. And I said, I'm going to take a, I'm going to follow a path that has less security and less prestige and a lot more flexibility so that I can teach academic classes and also teach 10 dance classes a week and also write books and go on book tour. And I decided like, that's the life I wanted for myself. So, um, I thought it was a good good well, opportunity to make that correction. Well, if you're a lecturer instead of a professor, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to go forward with this. <laughs> <laughs> I had you on a pedestal and now you're. Well, you know, it's partly because my last name is McGonagall and everyone wants me to be Professor McGonagall, like from Hogwarts, oh, which I would I love. I wish I could be. Oh, I love Harry Potter. Um, one quick thing. You mentioned it before, but it just uh, before we sign off, you'd mentioned before the value of writing. 
And can you just speak to, for a moment about the value of writing as it pertains to stress? Yeah. So um, partly I have like my scientist hat on and I'm thinking of all of these studies that show the benefit of specific writing exercises for helping people deal with stress. Um, one of them is thinking about what matters most to you and writing about it for five to 15 minutes. A lot of studies um, have shown that that young children and teenagers and college students, when they do this, it changes the way they interpret stressful experiences and failures. So if you know that what matters most to you is a certain activity that you love or your family or the kind of person you want to be in the future, how you want to change the world, uh, and you're really clear about those values, it really increases resilience and you know, interesting studies like being less likely to get sick during final exam week um, to being able to make meaning out of a, a failure experience. So that's, that's one type of way of thinking about writing is there are certain exercises to write about what matters to you. An exercise that I often um, do have done with students who are on their way to college um, is an exercise where you think about a past stressful experience that you recognize you were able to learn or grow from, that even if you wouldn't have chosen it for yourself, you can look back and say, but you know what? That was a good turning point, or I really learned something from that, or that, that taught me that I could trust a certain family member that I can now lean on for support. Um, and to actually write about that, what the experience was, why it was difficult, what resources you drew on internally, your own strengths, and then who else supported you or where you found strength and support. Uh, and that is a, a kind of writing exercise. I also love that as a sharing exercise. It's like the kind of thing you could do on a retreat or at a workshop because you get to hear all these wonderful stories and you get to, um, people get to actually name and articulate their own strengths and their own, uh, their own turning points. But then also, you know, writing just expressive writing, writing about your life, writing about what you care about, writing about your hopes, um, all of that as a, a creative actor, as an act of self-expression, we know can be really good for resilience. Uh, Dr. Kelly McGonigal, lecturer at Stanford <laughs> University, dancer, dance instructor, identical twin. And I bet an incredible, I, I, can already, I know you're an incredible mentor for lots of college men and women. Uh, let, let people know how to get a hold of you. And also talk, if you, if you would talk for a few minutes about your new book um, about movement. Yeah, I often think the best way to find me is actually just to Google the names of my books. Uh, I have a website, but I just feel like, you know, I wrote the books because it's the best way for me to share what I care about. You're not going to get great things from me on social media. Let me tell you the occasional book recommendation or picture of a cat. Um, but so my latest book, The Joy of Movement, it is about um, it is about how physical activity, exercise, is so important for resilience, hope, courage, social connection. And it's a whole new way of thinking about movement compared to the way culture usually talks about it as something that you have to do to lose weight, to make your body appear a certain way, um, to you know, prevent disease. It really is about looking at movement and physical activity, whether we're talking about sports or dance or running or walking, um, swimming as ways of experiencing the joys that are central to being human, cooperation, competition, mastery, growth, celebration, music, being in nature, belonging, um, challenge, uh, that movement is an amazing way to experience these things. And I, you know, I talk about everything from the chemistry of the exercise high and how to, how to harness it for, you know, to make exercise effective as something like an antidepressant, uh, to how to find community and belonging through social movement experiences. Um, and even lots of stories of people who found through movement a kind of metaphor that allowed them to deal with stressful life, life circumstances. Um, so it's, it's kind of like the upside of stress, but through the body. That's awesome. So, so what's, the, what's the site that they'll find the book on that, to best get, get a hold of you? Right, well, check out well to get hold of me, um, you can try kellymcgonigal.com, but to get a hold of the book, it's book. you know, the, these books are anywhere. And if you like audible uh audiobooks and you have listened to me talking for the past however long and don't hate my voice, um, I did record the audiobooks myself. Oh, nice. So 
that's another, you can find them anywhere you get audiobooks. Well, I'm gonna have to get the book and then I'll have you come on. We'll talk about the joy of movement, if it's okay. I, I had uh, Meg Jay on twice because she has two different books too. So if you're going to be as good as a professor, you're going to have to start. To well, and now I, I also know <laughs> something you and I both care about. We should have a conversation about how animals um, can oh, be yeah. a source of resilience and yeah. connection. Yeah. We both had our animals with us today. That's right. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for being a guest on uh, Raising Daughters Day. This is Dr. Kelly McGonigal. And uh, hopefully you'll look for a book, The Joy of Movement, and also the book, The Upside of Stress, which uh, we were talking about today. Thanks so much for being a guest. Thank you. Yeah. To get that, Moo just gave the microphone a kiss. Maybe that sound effect will be in there. <laughs> Maybe. Well, that was great. I'm so grateful that she came on and talked to us about her book, The Upside of Stress. And I hope that was valuable to y'all. This might be a good podcast to listen to with your daughters, especially if they're in middle school, high school, or are they in college or are the college age? Because I think um, that our girls today need to, to look at, understand, embrace stress in a uh, different way that's more healthy. And it also teaches them about resilience and coping strategies. I'll be back here in a week or so with another podcast. Pass this one on. This is a good one. Pass it on to your friends so they also can learn about stress, especially as it relates to girls and raising daughters. I'll be back here in a week and I'll see you then. 